Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight. My name is James Walner. Last time in episode four, we learned quite a bit about Joel Loveling. I want to thank everyone who took part and helped us understand more about the kind of person Joel was. Thank you so much. Now it is time for us to go back and look into Joel's death and the events that followed. In episode one, I explained that when it comes to the various beliefs out there about what happened to Joel, there are loosely three theories or camps or categories, whatever you want to call them. One general theory says we don't know who killed Joel at all. A random person could have walked through the parking lot that night and beat up both Travis Day and Joel Loveling. Joel died, Travis doesn't remember anything at all. Another camp has embraced a theory heard in a courtroom, the one Travis Stay's lawyers offered, the party bus theory that the clown, the cowboy, and others beat up Joel Loveling and Travis Stay. Again, Joel dies, Travis survives, but does not remember anything. Finally, the third theory, or camp, this one says simply that Travis Stay was responsible for Joel's death. As you will recall, this was the state's theory as well. Travis was arrested for the crime and ultimately put on trial. However, the state failed to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. A jury of his peers found Travis not guilty. This theory, or camp, say simply, this is the way it was. A man got away with murder because it just couldn't be proven. We will be looking a little closer at that party bus theory later, the cowboy, the clown, etc. But today we're going to focus on this third theory, Travis Stay. What was the evidence against him in the first place? What led to the arrest? And to help you understand all of that a little better, we will meet some of the people who were there and investigated it all. Welcome to Episode 5 of Unresolved, The Murder of Joel Loveling. There was an energy around it, unlike any case I had ever covered, unlike any case I've covered since. Late in the evening hours of October 27th, and it was a, a confusing scene. And there was a certain bizarreness to the case created by the Halloween atmosphere that night. And my, my first thoughts, it was just so unfair because everything was going so right in Joel's life at that time. Both sides had their theories about what happened. So when they got to the broken drum, everybody got off the bus. The bus was parked over on the east side of the parking lot here, closer to the road. Like where that blue pickup is now? Uh, he had the victim's blood on his clothes, on his face. Body of the sweatshirt, the arm of the sweatshirt, the costume piece that was in the garbage, his pants. Got into a fight and somebody died as a result of it. Most of the people, I think, went out one door and got on the bus. Uh, there were some lights here uh, on the side of the building, as you can see, but, you know, there's only so much illumination. And I even felt it could have, it should have been me, not him. Maybe that's the big sister talking, I don't know. 
one person who will be helping us to understand why Travis Stay was arrested, why he was put on trial for murder, is Nancy Yon. Nancy was the county prosecutor who handled the case. For 18 and a half years, from July 2000 to February of 2019, Nancy worked at the Grand Forks County State's Attorney's Office. Went to law school here at the University of North Dakota. Currently, I am working for the Attorney General's Office. So doing different kind of work, general counsel for both the University of North Dakota and Leak Region State College. After Travis Day became aware that law enforcement were looking for a man in a yellow Halloween costume, he marched down to the police department himself. Against the advice of his buddy, Eli McVeigh, Travis did not bring a lawyer with him. He just waltzed right into the PD and was interviewed by detectives Dwayne Simon and Mike Scholes. It looked like Travis had been in a fight. There was an obvious wound, a cut under his left eye. His knuckles were also bruised. Travis told them very matter-of-factly that he'd come down there because he thought one of the Halloween costumes they were looking for sounded like his. While speaking with him, um, one of the detectives noticed a spot of blood on his shoes that he was wearing. His shoes were brown shoes. So that was telling because the blood wouldn't have been very evident, but Detective Scholes was able to see that. And um, additionally, Travis had indicated that he had a lot to drink that night and couldn't remember parts of the evening. That's right. Travis could remember some things, but not others. He could remember getting to the bar. He could remember getting into an altercation with another individual there in the parking lot that was not Joel Loveline. And he could remember walking home and getting home, but he couldn't remember a, a small period of time where Joel Loveline was murdered. The altercation that Travis recalled was the scuffle he'd had with the guy dressed as a hunter, James Wavra. Hopefully you will recall that Wavra and Anna Barrett, a.k.a. Paris Hilton, stated they were outside of the broken drum walking back to the bus when a man in yellow jumped Wavra, grabbed him by the neck, took a swing at him. The whole thing was over in about 10 seconds after Wavra got a couple good punches in. That is, according to Wavra and Anna Barrett. Travis Stay said only that he recalled somebody punching him, then falling down, looking up, and seeing people getting on the bus. So those were all things that were very important to law enforcement. I think the visible signs that he'd been in altercation, uh, the blood on him, his lack of memory, and specifically his lack of memory as the interview went forward. During the interview, he made weak denials, um, indicated he didn't think he could have done this, um, but never really came out and said, I didn't do this. Because he couldn't remember, he couldn't say he didn't do it. Before investigators let Travis go, they asked him if they could take his shoes. Travis agreed. They also asked him if he had any other pieces of his costume or anything else that could be important to them. He let law enforcement know that one of the pieces of his costume was in his garbage at home. And when they asked why his piece of, garbage, or piece of costume was in the garbage, he indicated because it was soaked in blood. So again something that law enforcement was always obviously very interested in obtaining. So they went to his home. He gave them consent to search initially, and they recovered some pieces of evidence there, costume piece that was in the garbage, um, his brown pants that he was wearing that evening, his yellow sweatshirt. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. 
For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes, get the episodes early, and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. All this evidence was circumstantial at the time. Suspicious, but circumstantial. Travis had blood all over him, but he also had a huge cut on his face. And witnesses, including the hunter and Paris Hilton and others, stated that Travis had been hit in the parking lot by Wabra. So why shouldn't Travis Stay have blood on him? His own blood, that is. So Travis was not arrested at that point. After all, it's not illegal to have blood on you. Investigators also asked Travis if he wanted to press charges against James Wabra. Travis said he would have to think about it for a day or two, and ultimately he decided not to press charges. He said he just wanted to have this all cleared up and move on with his life. But things didn't get cleared up for Travis. Far from it. Other information that led to his arrest, um, once the evidence was collected, the pieces of his costume, there was a piece left at the scene, close to Joel Loveline's body, uh, the piece from the garbage can, the clothing he was wearing, um, his shoe, and then also um, Joel Loveline's clothing that had been um, taken into evidence. A lot of the evidence was um, analyzed by our state crime lab. And the state crime lab determined something very, very important. Some of the blood on Travis' clothing was his own, but not all of it. Some of it belonged to Joel Loveling. That was, I think, really what led to Travis's arrest in conjunction with everything else. But the blood evidence that was found on Travis's clothing, um, on his sweatshirt, the body of the sweatshirt, the arm of the sweatshirt, the costume piece that was in the garbage, his pants, all of it had Joel Loveling's blood on it. Both impact blood, which is like a blood spatter, um, where if you hit someone and they're already bleeding, that blood spatters back at you, but also contact blood, where he was close enough to Joel Lovely and where his piece of clothing came into contact with Joel's blood. So what does this all mean? Joel's blood is on Travis Stay's clothing, but Travis states he does not remember anything about this time of his night. Investigators wanted to explore if it could be determined how or why Joel's blood was on Travis' clothing. That's when the science of blood spatter comes into the picture. So, um, so we hired our blood spatter expert was Terry Labor out of Minnesota, a well-renowned blood spatter expert. He uh, spent a lot of time looking at the evidence, doing experimentation on spatter just to see you know, how, how the blood could have traveled the way that it did in this case. The blood spatter expert helped investigators understand two very important things. First of all, in what manner the blood may have gotten onto Travis' clothing. And then also, how much blood would there have been on anyone involved in the horrific beating of Joel Loveling? So we had, you know, evidence on the scene with blood in the parking lot. We had blood on um, Travis Stay's clothing, on Joel's clothing. And there was also a vehicle that was parked um, that had blood collected off of it, and it was Joel Loveling's blood. So that just tells you like, how much of a bloody scene that would have been, and impossible for someone to walk away from that scene without blood on them. 
And that is important to note because investigators had established that Travis Day did have blood on him, but he did not get back on the bus. So any blood they might find on the bus could not have come from Travis Day and would then implicate others. Everyone else that was on the bus was accounted for on the bus and then downtown afterwards. And why that's important to the state's case was that the bus had been luminaled by law enforcement. And that's, you know, a technique where they, they shine a light in there to see if there's any blood evidence. No blood evidence was found on the bus. Um, this was an assault where had you been part of the assault, you would have had blood on you. Um, both the um, officers involved in this investigation and the state's blood spatter expert said you, you'd have blood spatter on you. You'd, you would have had blood on your clothing, would have had blood on the, on the bus by transfer. There was no blood found on the bus. So that strengthened the state's case that whomever was involved in the murder of Joel Loveling was not on that bus after the murder. I met one of the detectives who tested the bus for blood. His name is Mike Flannery. In fact, let's meet him right now. Um, born in Jamestown, North Dakota, went to Jamestown High School, went to the university for a couple years, uh, went into the service, was in the Army for almost three, came back, went back to the university, got a job with the police department, and made that my career for almost 39 years. I asked Mike Flannery to describe the bus a little bit. Basically a school bus. Dietrich bus does all the hauling of kids back and forth to school. So that's what it is, big yellow bus, um, seating capacity, I'm guessing 30, 40, something like that. And of course with buses, there's always people standing. So you could have more than that, yeah. But it was your basic school bus. The Grand Forks PD located and detained the bus the same night of the assault, and they took it to an indoor hangar. Mike Flannery was assigned to luminol the bus to check for blood. So Mike, along with another detective, drove out to the hangar with his luminol kit. So I go in the bus, and it's, it's cold out, okay, and it's cold in the building. And I look in the bus, and I, my first thought is, oh my God, there's blood all over. And it's on the floor, you know, not on the seats or anything, but it's on the floor. And then I go over and look at it more, and I think to myself, that eh, doesn't look like blood. And then I realized it was... Jello shots, either strawberry or cherry, had the look of, you know, the redness that yeah. you initially think would be blood, but it was in, in lumps, you know, and blood doesn't lump, it spreads out. And then I uh, did, uh, I used luminol, which is a spray, and you spray it in an area, and it's not 100% because it reacts to some other chemicals too. But if you spray luminol in an area and then, and then turn out the light so it's dark, it'll uh, luminesce. And, I, and it was already dark in this garage, so I turned off the lights and sprayed and, and there was nothing. So let's recap a little bit here. Why was Travis Stay a suspect at that early stage? Well, Joel Loveling's injuries were massive and it was determined that whoever caused these would have had blood on them. Travis Stay not only had blood on him, a lot of it was Joel Loveling's blood. But he said he could not remember anything about Joel or that part of his night. He couldn't remember not doing it, of course. He just felt confident he wasn't the type of person that would do that. And then there was this, too. Nobody else appeared to have been in a gruesome beating that night. That is, the cowboy, the clown, and others. 
and the individuals that were located by law enforcement downtown after uh, the bus left the broken drum. Uh, law enforcement did not observe any blood on any of those individuals, did not observe any signs that they'd been involved in an altercation, no abrasions, no bruises, no cuts, no bleeding. It was in this, it was in this general vicinity right around here. It, about in the middle of the parking lot as well, too. This is Dwayne Simon. He was one of the lead detectives on this case. He agreed to meet me one day at the Broken Drum to help me understand the scene a little better. I spoke with him in the parking lot near where Joel was found. Duane recalled how quickly Bryce Larson, the cowboy, John Dezeal, the clown, and others were located that night. We brought in Bryce and Jimmy and all those guys, I mean, within an hour, within an hour mm-hmm. after we were called up here. I mean, we had them in there, and there was nothing, you know, there there was no physical evidence with as much blood as there was on Joel. On top of these other things, when considering Travis Day's potential involvement in this crime, investigators looked at something else, his behavior that night. James Wavre and Anna Barrett, that is the hunter and Paris Hilton, made statements and testified in court that Travis Day attacked James completely unprovoked. He was staring at them, and then he attempted to grab James by the neck and took a swing at him. But that wasn't the only insight investigators had into Travis Stay's behavior that night. After the press release on Monday, when Grand Forks PD told the world they were looking for a man in yellow, someone in Grand Forks picked up the phone and left the message with investigators. It was Roger and Stephen the two neighbor friends living just a stone's throw from the southeast entrance of Memorial Park Cemetery. They told their story how they'd been watching hockey in Roger's detached garage off the alley between 10th Avenue North and 11th Avenue North. And they told how Stephen had walked home that night down the alley and about the deranged man in yellow who took a wild swing at him. Detective Dwayne Simon called Stephen Rosica on the phone. This is from the original recording. And uh, at that time, did this individual uh, do anything else besides just follow you? He kind of followed me, then I took a right turn. Okay. And as I was kind of looking over my shoulder to see where he was, I could see him pulling up his right sleeve and coming at me, taking a swing at me, and I kind of dove out of the way. Okay. Fell to the ground. Here's Nancy Young again. After the murder of Joel Loveline, when Travis Day was walking back to his residence, he encountered an individual in a um, back alley, and this individual testified at trial that uh, this guy who was uh, met the description of Travis Day uh, confronted him in the alley and tried to assault him completely unprovoked, uh, described what Travis looked like, what he was wearing, and um, tried to locate him after He uh, tried to assault him um, with a friend of his, but wasn't able to locate him. And then it was shortly after that that Travis hailed a cab and arrived back at his residence. As I'm sure we've all heard, establishing a motive can be a major milestone in any murder investigation. Motive, after all, adds an important element, not the how it was done, but rather the why it was done. When preparing their case, prosecutors attempted to unravel this riddle too. What motive would Travis Stay have for killing Joel? 
There is no sensible or obvious explanation for anything that would lead to an angry, spontaneous beating of Joel. He'd spend his evening playing blackjack and just being his happy-go-lucky self. Here's Nancy Yom again. No one at his table said that he was involved in any altercation during the night. Um, a friend of his that had been with him previously in the night and spoke with Joel around 1130 said nothing out of the ordinary, no issues, no fights. I think even the uh, blackjack dealer said that Joel played blackjack for a while and, and didn't have any issues with anyone that night. But there is certainly a theoretical scenario that can connect the dots between a type of motive and Joel's death. And it is all very tragic, a situation where Joel was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time, caught in the crossfires of Travis Stay's drunken anger and rage. Before the bus got to the broken drum, the testimony was that Travis was causing problems on the bus and had gotten into some verbal confrontations on the bus and apparently maybe was making advances um, on a girl on the bus. Travis Stay and others confirmed this, more or less. Bryce Larson, the cowboy, recalled trying to throw someone off the bus at the stop before the broken drum, someone dressed in yellow. Travis Stay said he believed he had said something to someone's girlfriend and it caused some friction or heated words. He couldn't be sure. Now, there is some speculation or belief that this girlfriend may have been Anna Barrett, a.k.a. Paris Hilton, although I couldn't find anything in the police files that this was ever confirmed. Travis Stay didn't say it was Paris Hilton or it wasn't Paris Hilton. He just had some vague memory of saying something to some girl and annoying or angering her boyfriend. But regardless what girl it may have been, in considering a potential motive, it is possible that by the time Travis Stay got to the broken drum, he was a little angry after this interaction. Then at the broken drum, he is outside in the parking lot when James Wavra comes walking along towards the bus with a girl on his arm, Paris Hilton. According to witnesses, Travis then attempts to attack James Wavra. So when they got to the broken drum, everybody got off the bus, and at some point there was an altercation in the parking lot where Travis Day and Jimmy Wavra got into a fight, and that's where Travis received his injury to his face. Jimmy Wavra punched him in the face. He fell down on the ground, um, was stunned for a little bit, but was able to get up, composed himself, um, didn't fall down, and from there people got onto the bus and left the broken drum. So instead of kicking James Wabra's butt, it is Travis who gets it handed to him and in front of other people. Now at that time, Joel had been outside talking on the phone with his friend Terry. He never told Terry he witnessed any fight in the parking lot while they were talking, but we do know it took Joel about two minutes for him to return indoors after finishing his call with Terry. Just enough time to speak with Travis and maybe ask all these people getting on the bus what had happened. And when Joel did return to the table where Heather and his friends were gathered, he only stayed a few seconds before telling them he was going to go back outside to help someone who had been left behind on the bus. And so, when attempting to understand some kind of motive, investigators theorized that perhaps when Joel returned outside to help Travis, Travis Stay was too drunk to really understand Joel's intentions. Oh, it could have been... A mistaken, a mistaken identity where, uh, where Travis had already been involved in a fight with uh, Jimmy Wavra and his um, friends that were standing by. And perhaps he felt like this group was coming back to assault him again. And instead it was Joel Loveling coming to his aid and he, assa and he yeah. assaulted him and killed him. 
with Travis Stay's erratic, violent behavior that night at the broken drum in the alley near the cemetery, added to his stated memory loss and Joel Loveling's blood on his clothing, the case against Travis Stay was considered very strong, and in December of 2008, Travis' case went to trial. Next time, we will talk about that trial, and we will explore the defense's theory that it was not Travis who attacked Joel Loveling, but instead, other members of that yellow party bus. Once again, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, researched, written, and produced by me, James Walner. I also do the sound editing. Our podcast network manager is Chris Kurzman. Madison Hunter, our social media specialist, and Jeremy Fugelberg, our editorial advisor. Don't miss the awesome Dakota Spotlight Facebook group. To join, go to facebook.com slash groups slash Dakota Spotlight. Finally, some music this season was generously granted again by Wowza in Kalamazoo and Hand Turner. Check them out at wowzaincalamazoo.bandcamp.com and handturner.bandcamp.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.